and welcome to Cardio Buzz, your weekly cardiology podcast presented by Dr. Hussain Hishmat, professor of cardiology and interventional cardiologist. Every week, we refresh the busy doctor with a selection of practice-changing research, conference proceedings, guidelines, news, and interviews with experts. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hi everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of CardioBuzz. And if you ask a cardiologist which organ interacts most with the heart, then the answer would be either the lungs or the kidneys. And cardiac interactions uh, with the kidney are not only limited to pressures and hemodynamics, they are more intricate and deep. They involve hormones, neurons, minute-to-minute and day-to-day regulation of heart rate, blood pressure, urine output, autonomic nervous system and cardiac function. These interactions are evident physiologically and are also very pertinent clinically. We know that there are at least five classic cardiorenal syndromes, acute and chronic. We know that the renin angiotensin system, which is essentially a uh, renin-induced mechanism, is activated as a defense system in heart failure. We know that kidney disease is a risk factor for atherosclerotic and coronary disease. Hemodialysis shunts have various effects on cardiac output. RAS blockers, spironolactone, diuretics are essential cardiac medications that affect the kidneys in different ways. And we are lucky that we are living in time where new agents are coming that can benefit both renal patients and cardiac patients at the same time. And to discuss these issues, I'm glad to have one of the eminent nephrologists in the region, Dr. Nizar Atallah. Dr. Nizar is currently a consultant of nephrology in Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. He had residency training in internal medicine and nephrology fellowship, hypertension, kidney transplantation in Henry Ford Hospital in Michigan, USA. Then he became an associate professor in the University of Kentucky. And then he was promoted in 2020 clinical professor of medicine in Cleveland Clinic Learners College of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Nizar is well known, of course, for his uh, work in resistant hypertension, kidney transplantation, chronic kidney disease, and cardiorenal syndromes with dozens of publications in these fields. So I'm glad to have you, Dr. Nizar. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Dr. Hashmat, for the uh, invitation and the introduction. Uh, It's very nice to be with you today. Uh, As you mentioned, there is a lot of interaction Uh, between cardiology and nephrology. Uh, We share a lot of patients and we are discovering over time that a lot of therapies are common to both specialties like RAS inhibition, as you mentioned, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists and SGLTT inhibitors. Uh, The most common cause of death in chronic kidney disease, dialysis and kidney transplant patients is cardiovascular disease, as you know, and we need to work together to improve that. Uh, there's a huge field of cardiorenal medicine that's developing and we will be working more and more together to address these issues. Exactly, Dr. Nazar. You started by exactly what I wanted to say. Uh, we need to be working as a team, uh, not as silos. Not just looking at the serum creatinine or just looking at the ejection fraction and focusing on that. So my first question... Uh, how do nephrologists look at cardiovascular risk? Uh, from our, from the cardiology point, whenever we see a patient 
with chronic kidney disease, we know that there is some vascular disease uh, in the coronary, in the periphery. What's the nephrologist's take on that? How frequently do you prescribe statins, aspirin? And do you routinely refer a patient with chronic kidney disease to a cardiologist even if he's asymptomatic? So as you know, uh, our patients, uh, uh, they have traditional uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease and non-traditional risk factors. You know, traditional risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, smoking, and family history uh, of cardiovascular disease plus sedentary lifestyle. This is common to any patient, but we also have non-traditional risk factors like you mentioned earlier. For example, our patients have higher oxidative stress, more inflammation, vascular calcification, especially uh, uh, medial calcification, different than other patients who have intimal calcification. Anemia is another major issue that's very common in chronic kidney disease patients and increases the risk for cardiovascular events. Normally, when we see our patients, we try to address those issues as much as, much as possible with our patients. Uh, now, for hyperlipidemia, statins are widely used in chronic kidney disease patients at different stages, uh, mainly because of lower cardiovascular events that were shown in uh, some studies. For example, the SHARP study, I'm sure you're aware, uh, had patients with chronic kidney disease at different stages and patients on dialysis. Patients on chronic kidney disease uh, had uh, benefit from uh, using statins, and that's one of the reasons we use them. Also, they help in proteinuria control, which is a major problem in our patients. Uh, Planet 1 and Planet 2 studies showed clearly that atorvastatin helps with controlling proteinuria. Also, statins are widely used in kidney transplant patients. Uh, alert study uh, showed benefit in those patients, even if their cholesterol is not elevated. It improves the graft survival. Now, unfortunately, studies were very negative in patients on dialysis. So we have the 4D study that looked at atorvastatin in dialysis patients. We have the Aurora study looked at rosuvastatin in dialysis patients. Uh, even the SHARP study had about one-third of the patient on dialysis, and all of these did not show benefit um, in dialysis patients. So normally, if a dialysis patient um, does, is not on statins, we do not necessarily start it unless they have a cardiovascular event or if they were on it in the past, we do not uh, stop it. Now, aspirin is used is like the general population, basically. So we use it usually for secondary prevention. It, we used to use it in the past for primary prevention, but as you know, like in the general population, we don't have evidence that it helps. Um, sometimes we use it to help the patency of AB fist in dialysis patient, but the data on that uh, is very limited. Now, uh, as Referral to cardiologists, of course, uh, we refer sometimes depending on uh, the patient's symptoms and how bad their situation is. Um, if they develop a cardiovascular event or we see that they are getting worse, especially having dyspnea on exertion, we have uh, positive stress tests, of course, we refer them uh, to cardiologists to be evaluated. We try to work together as much as possible in terms of choosing the best stress test to be done in terms of timing, the heart catheterization, and choosing the best therapy for the patient. Very good, Dr. Nazar. So in your answer, you added a few more points to the interaction between the heart and the kidney, that statins can reduce proteinuria and they can preserve the yeah. potency of uh, grafts, and that's wonderful. 
Uh, my question, my second question is, uh, we are sad that as we grow older, our kidney functions tend to decline. And recently we only had RAS blockers that can slow down the progression of chronic kidney disease. But now we are living in exciting time because we are at least having now uh, three agents on the horizon that can protect the kidneys. So we can take them one by one if we can. Let's start by phenerenone. Uh, we're hearing that name coming frequently. What's that? And how different is it from the regular uh, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists? And what evidence and what promise does this molecule bring? Now, uh, as you know, uh, uh, one of the major problems that lead to kidney disease, especially diabetic kidney disease, is fibrosis and uh, inflammation. Uh, just like uh, this uh, contributes to heart disease and worsening heart failure, uh, this also uh, contributes to worsening kidney disease, especially diabetic kidney disease. Um, in general, diabetic kidney disease uh, pathophysiology includes hemodynamic, metabolic, and fibrosis factors. Uh, studies in the past used to concentrate on metabolic factors, like controlling diabetes, uh, especially with different agents. Uh, hemodynamic factors, like using RAS inhibitors, and more recently, SCT2 inhibitors. Um, unfortunately, most of the studies that were looking at inflammation and fibrosis were negative. Um, spironolactone, we had a lot of interest in it. Uh, but the problem, the major problem is uh, hyperkalemia. Now, phenerenone is a very interesting molecule. Uh, first, it's a non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. So it acts on the same receptor like spironolactone, but it's not steroid-based. So because of that, it causes less side effects. So for example, hyperkalemia is much less. Also, uh, uh, gynecomastia uh, is less, and other side effects are less than uh, spironolactone. Now, in terms of uh, studies looking at phenerenone in uh, diabetic kidney disease, there are two major studies that were published uh, not too long ago, the Fidelio study and the Figaro study. Um, Fidelio is about 5,700 patients, all diabetic kidney disease patients. Um, in fact, uh, even Figaro is almost the same design, diabetic kidney disease patient, but they included more patients, about 7,400 patients. Both studies look included patients with GFRs about 25 to 75, and they needed to have albuminuria, at least microalbuminuria, but it extended also to macroalbuminuria. So they had to have urine albumin anywhere between 30 to 5,000. All the patients to be included in the study, uh, both studies actually, uh, had had to be on RAS inhibitors. So phenerenone was used as an add-on on top of RAS inhibitors. Uh, Fidelio looked mainly at the renal outcomes and looked at the cardiovascular outcomes as a secondary outcomes. Figaro was the opposite. So it, had, it looked at cardiovascular outcomes in those patients as a primary outcome and the renal outcomes were secondary. Both studies were very positive and uh, there are more studies are being done uh, looking at those patients, actually expanding even uh, the uh, studying phenerenone into other populations like heart failure population, like non-diabetic chronic kidney disease patients. Uh, and so we are very excited about this molecule. Uh, we're hoping it will uh, prove benefit to even wider population outside diabetic kidney disease. And the fact that it causes less hyperkalemia is very helpful uh, for our patients. Okay, so we're having a refined uh, 
uh, an evolved form of mineral corticoreceptor antagonist that protects yes. the kidney and protects the heart, whether diabetic or not, and with less and uh, lower chances of hyperkalemia, right? Yes, of course, yes. Okay. So that's the first molecule. Uh, the second molecule is now well known, which is dapagliflozin. And this molecule moved from endocrinologists then to cardiologists. And now it's in the lab of nephrologists after the DAPA-CKD trial. So how do you see this molecule and how should it be adopted in clinical practice? So, uh, you know, SGLT2 inhibitors work on the proximal tubule in the kidney. Um, and uh, initially they were uh, invented to be diabetic medications. Basically, they block uh, glucose reabsorption and with that they uh, cause glucose loss through the urine and uh, we thought because of that that will help controlling diabetes but it, the, these medications they have a lot of other uh, benefits and over time with the different studies um, uh, on dapagliflozin and other SGLT2 inhibitors like canagliflozin and uh, empagliflozin um, the evidence is showing uh, benefit uh, um, uh, cardiorenal benefits uh, both to the kidneys and the heart um, now the mechanism as I said uh, the initial mechanism we thought about is increasing glucose excretion but we recognize also that sodium is lost too with glucose so there is natriuresis and then you know there are other important mechanisms we don't really know which one is more important than another but but there is a switch in energy expenditure so the organs especially the kidneys and the heart instead of relying on glucose they start relying on ketones so they become much more energy efficient also there is lower oxidative stress because of those medications they improve uh, hemoglobin they lower uric acid so all in all uh, they uh, have multiple benefits to both uh, the heart uh, and the kidneys we know there are shared risk factors between the heart and the kidneys and uh, uh, this family of medication uh, helps significantly. Now, as you know, uh, empagliflozin, dapagliflozin, and canagliflozin were studied um, mostly in uh, cardiac patients. And then there were secondary outcomes looking at uh, uh, kidney outcomes. Uh, dapagliflozin uh, and canagliflozin both have studies looking at renal outcomes as primary outcomes. Um, dapagliflozin um, had the latest study which is the DAPA CKD it included about 4300 patients the follow-up uh, was designed initially to be about four years but then the study was stopped earlier because of overwhelming benefit uh, the nice thing about this DAPA CKD study that it included diabetic and non-diabetic patients just like the DAPA HF yes. and uh, down the emperor reduce and the emperor preserve that included even patients down to GFR of 25 with albuminuria all patients needed to be on DAS inhibitors significant improvement we're talking about 38 39 percent improvement in renal outcomes whether we look at doubling of creatinine requirement of dialysis uh, or transplantation the nice thing there are more and more studies coming out uh MPA kidney was uh, just Look, stopped recently yeah. and just hopefully we'll have some we're we're have some it. results in the near future yeah, I read in the news a few days ago that uh, it, the study was again uh, stopped because of overwhelming benefit. Yes, yes. So MPA kidney, um, uh, we're expecting it will show similar results to DAPA CKD. The nice thing about MPA kidney, it included more patients. It's, uh, it's about 6,500 patients. 
Uh, and pachydnia also included wider population. So DAPA, CKD, and credence. Uh, credence initially went down to GFR of 30. Uh, DAPA, CKD went down to GFR of 25. And pachydnia goes down to GFR of 20. Uh, also, it's, uh, it's including diabetic and non-diabetic patients. And also at the same time, it includes patients even with normal albuminuria. So um, we are expecting, if the results are really positive, that it will expand the use of SGLT2 inhibitors to even wider population, especially with chronic kidney disease. That's great. So now we're having like three agents that can help renal patients to slow down their progression of disease, phenerenone, dapagliflozin, probably impagliflozin as well. Uh, do you see yes. any drugs or procedures coming in the pipeline also, Sunusa? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, there are, uh, unfortunately, our patients are very, very complex patients. And over the years, we had multiple, multiple negative studies. Um, uh, the problem is normally we, we try to concentrate on one mechanism, uh, looking at one uh, versus uh, one medication versus another. And usually that's, that's, uh, that showed negative results. Now, there are some uh, studies ongoing in the field of nephrology. Uh, there are some exciting results, hopefully, uh, over the next uh, couple of years. Um, now, in the field of chronic kidney disease, diabetic kidney disease, endothelin antagonist is the one that's being studied now, and hopefully it will show some good results. Uh, when we look at the field of end-stage disease and transplantation, xenotransplantation and artificial kidneys are being studied heavily now. Even regeneration of kidney tissue is being studied heavily. So that has a lot of uh, good future. Uh, when we look at glomerular diseases, uh, for example, affecting the kidneys, um, there are new immunosuppressive medications uh, that are being studies, uh, studied, uh, help trying to help control these glomerular diseases and, and prevent progression of those uh, diseases into chronic kidney disease and eventually end-stage renal disease. So there are studies ongoing. Uh, unfortunately, because we had a lot of negative studies in the past, we don't get excited easily with one study or one short study. We were trying to to wait for longer studies and bigger studies. Uh, but but for for sure, there are some exciting uh, things happening, uh, and uh, over the next couple of years, we'll have uh, uh, more uh, medications that we can use for our patients. We hope for the best, Doctor Nizar. Uh, my last question, and it's, it would seem a bit basic, but it's important because uh, the holy month of Ramadan is approaching. And so what should the physician tell the patient who has chronic kidney disease? How should he counsel him on fasting in Ramadan? So, unfortunately, this area is not well studied, but of course, uh, we have information from uh, smaller studies. Um, in general, uh, when we counsel our patients, we look at their kidney function for sure, but we also look at other risk factors. So, for example, a diabetic patient, especially uncontrolled diabetic, uh, we don't necessarily wait till their kidney function is so bad before we uh, advise them not uh, not to fast. But in general, if ha somebody has uh, a GFR uh, of uh, 45 or above, in general, uh, it's safe for them uh, to fast. Uh, we always recommend to the patients to drink enough fluids uh, between uh, uh, iftar time uh, and uh, suhoor time, which is between uh, the, the sunset and sunrise. 
and we uh, work with them and counsel them on how to distribute their medications at night instead of uh, throughout uh, the day. Now, if somebody has a GFR of 30 to 45, here we look at the other risk factors if they are diabetic, how the, how good the diabetes control is, if they are hypertensive, if they have heart failure, if they have volume overload or not. So in general, patients between 30 to 45, if they do not have a lot of risk factors and they are stable, uh, they are able to fast. But we also tell them, you know, we have a low threshold to break your fasting because we don't want to cause any harm or worsening of kidney function. In general, this group of patients, if they want to fast, um, we ask them to repeat their kidney function about seven to 10 days after the start of the holy month, just to make sure their kidney function is stable. Uh, and if it is stable, we tell them to continue to fast. If uh, we notice worsening of the kidney function, then we tell them typically to stop. Now, the third group is patients with GFR of 15 to 30. In general, we tell those patients to uh, not to fast, but we have a group of them that, you know, insist on fasting. Um, if they are stable and they know how to manage their fluid intake and they know how to manage their medications, uh, we tell them it's better not to fast, uh, but if they insist, we tell them they can do it, but we also have a low threshold to break the fasting and also check their, their kidney function a few days after they start fasting. The, the last group of patients who are having a GFR under 15 or they are on dialysis, we normally recommend for them not to fast uh, because the fluid management and the shifts that happen in dialysis are uh, significant and they could get uh, dehydrated very easily. Uh, they need to, to have enough water intake and also they need to take their medications on time, sometimes before dialysis, sometimes after this. It would be very, very hard to do it uh, with fasting. So all in all, uh, we look at the kidney function, we look at other risk factors, try to work with them to distribute the medications right, distribute their fluid intake right. Uh, and we try to individualize as much as possible. Um, sometimes even patients with GFR of 60, if I see that they have uncontrolled diabetes and I know that they, uh, they got admitted more than once over the last year with uh, changes in the volume status, whether it's dehydration or uh, hypervolemia, I advise them not to fast. So we have to individualize as much as possible. That, that was a brilliant uh, review of uh, the impact of fasting and the different thresholds, 45 and 30 and 15 and dialysis. Uh, yeah, this was great, Dr. Nazar. It's the first time I hear this detailed scientific uh, explanation and advice for patients with chronic kidney disease. And uh, honestly, I, I enjoyed this interview, Dr. Nazar. I learned a lot, several new points, new hopes for patients with chronic kidney disease, phenerenone, dapagliflozin, impagliflozin, when to fast Ramadan, when not to fast. It was great having you with us, Dr. Nazar. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hashmat. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I would like to thank you for the invitation. And I'm sure we'll have more and more opportunities over the next few years uh, to discuss and address more issues that are common to cardiology and nephrology. Uh, more importantly, uh, I hope more and more uh, therapies will become more available and we'll be able to work together as we started with as a multidisciplinary team to help our patients and improve their outcomes. Definitely, Dr. Nazar. Thank you again for uh, accepting our invitation and see you again soon in the future, Sean.
Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cardio Buzz. If you like the content, follow the show on your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. You will find previous episodes and get alerts to new ones. Please rate the show and write your own review of the content. You can share the episodes to spread knowledge and benefit. Enjoy your weekend and see you next Saturday.